you've got a smartphone, we're reading out of the ESV. Psalm 126. We're on the third summer, uh, Sunday of, of Advent. And also when summer uh, rolls around, I like to preach through Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms, 150 of them in uh, total. And uh, so we are combining those two things together uh, with Psalm 126. And the theme of this psalm is joy. The Bible uses the word happiness, happy or happiness, about 30 times, give or take, throughout the whole Bible. And it usually refers to being in some sort of state of blessing, that God blesses you and happy is such a person. However, the word joy and a variant of the word joy is used about 300 times in Scripture. It is about 10 times more common. And I believe the Bible sets joy as a, as a higher standard. It's, a, it's a, a higher thing to pursue than happiness. To have joy is to be exceedingly glad, um, to be internally brightened by God's work. It's possible to have joy with, uh, you know, a sad faith. I, I, I often use the illustration that happiness, as we know it today, is something that's very flimsy. A child with an ice cream is happy. A child who drops their ice cream is no longer happy. Um, it's something that can just be removed from you uh, in a moment, it would seem. I enjoyed reading a quote by uh, Chelsea Stanley. Uh, she said this, Joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness can change with our circumstances, but joy, biblical joy, is firmly rooted in the unchanging, once and for all, redeeming work that is Jesus Christ. Right? So joy is something with permanent, that is something that is rooted. And so we'll see here in Psalm 126 that even in the midst of tears and struggle, the joyful remembrance of God's past acts leads to hope for future joy. Right? I'll say that again. The joyful remembrance of God's past acts leads us to have hope for future joy. Joy. If you've been part of the church for any length of time, you know that this is a frequent uh, a theme and subject that we preach on. But uh, people forget. We forget. So we need to be reminded of uh, this. I need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded of the good things that God has done in the past and looking forward expectantly in the future. Psalm 126. A song of ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of God.
This psalm is a, a song of ascent, and many people have thought that these kind of psalms, are the priest walking up the stairs to the temple, um, they repeat these psalms, but I, I don't think that uh, makes a lot of sense. It's much wider uh, than that. Uh, a few times a year during festivals such as, uh, as Passover and Pentecost, uh, Jewish pilgrims that lived outside of Jerusalem would come to uh, to the city and they would go uphill to get to Jerusalem, to get to Mount Zion where the temple was. You would have to go uphill. You would have to ascend. Uh, and so these songs and psalms were sung and, and, and recited as, as pilgrims went up to the temple uh, to worship. So they'd be reminding them of the great things God has done. And this psalm in particular has a very, uh, very easy context. It's referring to some kind of great uh, self-saving work, great deliverance of God um, out of bondage and distress uh, of the people of Israel. And it's very, very likely referring to coming out of Babylon during the exile in the time of Ezra. So the Jewish people came out of exile um, in Babylon, uh, and that is the uh, the context here. It's immediately after that happened. We don't know exactly who wrote Psalm 126, but much of church history attributes it to Ezra. Right? There's a book in the Bible called Ezra in the Old Testament. And what we have in this psalm is really a psalm that tries to um, seems to tie together and bring together some of the great parts of the Old Testament. Right? This is a, a book that brings together Ezra and Nehemiah and Isaiah. It brings it all together, uh, the themes. The song breaks down. I just want to give a real quick. The song breaks down uh, nice and easily. The first three verses is about the present remembering of joy. And then verses 4 to 6. So there's three verses at the beginning. Um, and then verses 4 to 6 is the present prayer for joy. So it's remembering of joy and then a prayer for joy. And all of it is done in the present tense. It is people in the moment remembering what God has done and then praying in the present for future joy. It starts off by saying, The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream. And it uses Zion. It uses the name for the land. The land of Canaan was called Zion, it was one of its names, and it means the, the dwelling place of God. And the key sort of, uh, of cornerstone of all of this is that you had Mount Zion with the temple on top in Jerusalem. Right? Mount Zion with the temple in Jerusalem. That was the cornerstone of Zion, meaning the whole, whole land. And the people of Israel had been exiled from their land due to the breaking of God's Mosaic Covenant, and therefore they'd lost their land. Right? Nathan went over that real well last week in Deuteronomy 28. They broke the covenant, and they were exiled from the land. That temple 
that great source of national pride that these people had in Israel was burnt to the ground. That was the picture of God's presence in Zion. It was there the temple up on that hill, and it was burnt to the ground. It would have been an awful, awful time. There was no peace for these people. There was no joy. And in that moment, there was very little hope. Do you imagine the worst of national catastrophes? And I can almost multiply it. That is what it felt like. The people of Israel did not have an easy time during the exile. They didn't have a wonderful time at all in captivity. In Psalm 137, it says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? All right, so these, these psalms, these songs, they're Israel's songbook, and they're saying, how can we sing these songs? How can we use an instrument when we're in a foreign land? They're the Lord's songs, and we're no longer in Zion. And so that's why that land was so crucial. That land was to be a place of God's blessing, of God's kingdom, a visible picture of God's kingdom on earth. And God's worship took place in his house, that temple. Away from it, God's blessing upon the Israelites was not clearly seen. And so we see there, it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. What made this this restoration so amazing? In the book of Ezra, in Ezra 1.1, we're told that the Lord God stirred King Cyrus's heart to pay for the temple to be rebuilt in Zion. That's an amazing thing. God used a pagan king, a non-Jew. He stirred his heart to release the Jews from captivity and offer, as Andrew said, a blank check. He gave them a blank check to rebuild the temple in Zion. An absolutely amazing thing. It would be like getting an atheist to build the greatest cathedral for the worship of God. And even then, it doesn't that illustration doesn't barely live up to uh, what actually happened. But if King Cyrus did this, if King Cyrus was the one who gave this blank check for the rebuilding of, of Israel and the temple, why is it why are we told the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion? John Gill simply says this. The deliverance of the captives, though it was by Cyrus as an instrument, it was the Lord's work, and he stirred him up to do it. Therefore, it is ascribed to God. So yes, God used 
this king, and yes, this king did give them the blank check to rebuild, but God is the one who was acting. God is the one that made this happen. God is the one that was at work. And so it says, we were like those who dream. Who's read that before? We were like those who dream. Who's looking at it confused? Is this thing, we had a dream? What does that mean? God restored our fortune, therefore we were dreaming. The only dreams I remember are nightmares, right? That doesn't sound very good, right? We being the people of Israel, we being the covenant community, says we were like those who dream. The word there, it means the 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 flow of thought here. It's saying we had rapture. We were like dreamers. We were consoled after immense grief. This word here is very similar to a word used, uh, a phrase used in the New Testament. In Luke 24, 41, after the disciples saw Jesus following the resurrection, it says this, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? So Jesus appears to the disciples and it says they were disbelieved for joy and were marveling. They can't believe the risen Lord is with them. They were consoled beyond measure. One commentator said they had an enraptured mind. That's what it means. Just think of the think of you being in a circumstance. And I want us to picture this. You're in a circumstance that is absolutely awful. The worst thing you can imagine and then it gets completely reversed. You're consoled more than you can possibly believe. What a contrast to the tears and struggles. Israel, we're now free. Then it goes on to say, there's, our mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongue was shouts of joy. There was joy. There was laughter. There was gladness. There was all these wonderful uh, emotions. And it says that the nations, that meaning the non-covenant community, everyone who was not a Jew, saw what God had done and said, the Lord has done great things for them. And to make a very quick application of this point, this is one of the reasons why testimony can be such a wonderful thing. Because in testimony, it shows non-Christians and unbelievers what God has done for you. And it says in this situation, it says the nations have seen, they know, they've seen that God has done a good thing for these people. It says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Everybody sees this great joy. Everyone sees this almost impossible thing has taken place. This is the redemptive work of God, and it shouldn't be viewed lightly. And if you think also to these words that really struck me, in Hosea 9.1, in the lead-up to the exile, these words were said, 
from the prophet Hosea. He says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitutes' wages and all threshing floors. That's hard words. God, through the prophet Hosea, said to Israel, Don't be happy. Have no joy. He banned them. He commanded them against having joy because their sin was so great. And it led to the exile. This is a present remembering of the covenant people of what God has done in the past. However, there's a prayer. A prayer begins in verse 4. The present had new challenges. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. God did a great thing for us in the past, but right now, restore our, poor, our fortunes. Things aren't great. Things are not great at all. The book of Nehemiah helps us see it. The book of Ezra helps us see it as well. Ezra returned to Jerusalem with the book of the law to reestablish worship in the land. Nehemiah came to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Nehemiah 1 verse 3 says this, They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. They've been released out of exile. They're happy and then they get there and oh, this is not good. There's a lot of work ahead. In addition, Isaiah 10, Isaiah 10 verses 20 to 22 says this, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Now listen to this. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For through your people Israel be as sand, for though your people Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. So we'll put this together. There's joy in leaving, but then they arrive in Jerusalem, they find it in ruins. Their enemies are all around them. People have moved back in. And many, many Jews, this is only a remnant, will return. Many Jews remained in captivity. Many Jews did not want to actually leave. So you've got this picture here of two million Jews, give or take, coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, going into the Promised Land, living there for a few hundred years, getting exiled, and now we're told only a remnant have come out of, we don't know how many, only a remnant have come out of exile. That number of two million has dwindled. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream, enraptured, happy, so joyous. But that's only some. Some thought, 
Okay. I actually prefer this pagan king here. Things are better. I don't have to follow any of God's rules here. I prefer living here. There's a very real sense in which there's a mass apostasy took place during the exile and following the exile. The true believers, those who trusted in God, went to the land, but many stayed. And that was a source of struggle. This prayer here in verse 4, restore our fortunes. It's like what God did at the end of the book of Job in Job 42. It says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Same, same sort of phrasing. When he gave him twice as much as he had before. So what are the people praying? What are they saying, restore our fortunes? If um, you've got a KJV, um, or one of those uh, older translations, some actually translate this, this, this text that says, turn back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south or the streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes, has got a big meaning to it. Restore our fortunes and turn back our captivity. It's all in one. Hebrew is a very complicated language. Right? But what this is meaning is release those who remain in captivity. Bring them back to us. Restore our fortunes like the streams in the Negev or the streams in the south. The Negev being a region at the south, below Jerusalem, very hot, very dry. But once or twice a year it would rain, once or twice a year perhaps snow would melt, and water would actually go through this dry region and this very desolate area that looks like the surface of Mahaz would become like a lush, flourishing place. This is a plea for the unity of the people to see the land and the people restored and worshiping God. Making an application on this, Matthew Henry says, The beginnings of mercy in the past are encouragements to us to pray for the completing of it. What he means is, because we've seen God work in the past, we should pray for him to finish his mercy to us. And this is the bit that I love. Thankfully, God does answer this prayer. God does answer this prayer. The book of Isaiah shows us how this prayer is answered. Isaiah 10 describes the problem with only a remnant coming and many staying in captivity. But the chapters around Isaiah 10 are known as all those Christmas passages. Do we not read them? Do you remember Isaiah 7? Probably the last time you read this was last year. Isaiah 7. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. In Isaiah 9, 
Verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah 11 speaks of a king. Isaiah 11 verse 10, And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The root of Jesse, the son of David, is Jesus Christ. Further, in Matthew chapter 1, have you read that? Matthew chapter 1, the book, the New Testament starts off with a genealogy and it traces Jesus' line back to Abraham. Well, in the middle of that genealogy, it separates the people to those who came before the exile and those who came after the exile. Jeconiah begat Shealtiel. It's actually very interesting because what it's saying is, is Jesus came from the remnant that came out of exile. That remnant that came out of Isaiah 10 included the line that led us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. How does God answer this prayer to restore the fortunes of Israel? He sends them a Messiah. That is how he answers. And then we see a principle. Verses 5 and 6. A principle for how this Messiah will work, for how the people are supposed to come before their God in looking for the joyous reign of the Messiah. First, let's read those together. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Sheaves simply being sort of bundles of the harvest of wheat. What does this mean? I want to apply it to three groups. Three groups. The first is Old Covenant Israel. And the second is Jesus Christ. And the third is Christians today. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. What this is helping us to see is that those prayers, those tearful prayers that the people offered when Israel went off to exile, not everyone was godless back in Old Covenant Israel. There were people praying. There were people crying out to God. Prayers with tears for the restoration of Israel when in exile, those prayers were answered with that joy that we read about in verse 1. God used that, those prayers and those tears to answer his people's prayers and giving them that time we were like those who dream. There are prayers for conversion. There's prayers for God's blessing. There's prayers for those who backslide. There's prayer in suffering. There's prayer in difficulty. It's all crying out to God. Weeping eventually produced God's deliverance for the covenant people. And this is saying to them, 
Continue in that path. Continue in your weeping, praying and trusting God. Joy will come again. Israel's unfaithfulness could not overrule God's faithfulness. However, ultimately, these words were see they're answered by a Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, would be the one who brought future joy. I told you that this, these prayers were in the present tense. These verses are in the present tense. It is present tense. Why the English lesson? Because I want us to see who's praying. It becomes a singular person who's praying and sowing with tears. We too must apply this this, uh, this um, to Christ. Christ is the singular man who did, verses 5 and 6, who sowed in tears and shall reap with joy. Did Jesus have tears? Stupid question, right? Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We see him weeping over Jerusalem. We see him weeping for the salvation of the Jews as Israel Messiah. In Matthew 26, verse 38, the night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus suffered. Jesus had tears. But Jesus took on tears and suffering to bring joy. Those words of Isaiah 53 that we have uh, written on, on the, the wall immediately outside our church auditorium, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And what this is saying is that Jesus Christ was punished upon the cross. He was crushed under the weight of his father's wrath for sin. Out of the anguish of his soul, many shall be counted righteous. He died to take the punishment we deserve. We call that the good news. And his righteousness is given to us when we receive it by faith. It says, many shall be counted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. It was in Jesus' sorrow and tears that were sown in the ground that would bring a harvest of joy. In Christ, grief causes exaltation. A very back-to-front, upside-down principle. But it's how it works in God's economy. And therefore, for us today, how do we apply this text? None of us are being held in exile in Babylon. Some people say, tears give way to joy. You heard that? Tears give way to joy. Joy will come. 
This text says, in verse 5, those who plant tears will produce joy. Tears cause joy. They don't give way to joy. They cause them. They actually produce them. Tears are to be expected in a fallen world. They are to be normal. They are to be viewed as normal, not abnormal. Tim Keller has said on this, that you can have tears because of your situation, but you can also have tears because of your tears. And what he's meaning by that is, you can have a hard situation and therefore have tears, but you can also have tears because you've got tears. Ever been sad that you're sad? And this is why a future vision Looking into the future, a future vision of the place of tears is necessary. Because in light of the cross of Christ, all of our suffering, all of our tears, all of our hardship, all of our struggle, all of our groaning produces joy. That when we're struggling, God is not rejecting you in your tears. Jesus was rejected in your place to bring you to God. And therefore Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we're persevering, we're saying no to sin, we're seeking to love in difficult circumstances. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary effect Affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When we reject God, there is no promise of joy at the end of our tears. But when we trust Jesus Christ, the one who had tears and produced joy... There is an ending of praise. There is a stable ground for joy. That because of Jesus entering into our humanity, experiencing the pain and tears caused by our sin, we can be freed from the greater exile, the greatest captivity, our own captivity to sin. What Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, our slavery to sin. And we can be restored to fullness of joy because Christ suffered in our place. And therefore there is a promise of a future Zion. That God restoring the Zion hundreds of years ago was not the final restoration. There is a greater Zion that awaits. The greater dwelling place of God. Revelation 21 and 22 speaks of a place of no suffering and sin. With the fullness of joy. With the people being with their God. And we wait for that now with a measure of joy, knowing greater joy awaits. Let's be encouraged as I close with Paul's words from Romans chapter 8. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all? Let's pray.